0: This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Jennifer Liu, CFO of Aduro Biotech, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 551.
1: We've had to adapt some of those supplemental metrics to fit our business, and so I've spent a lot of time thinking about how to make sure the integrity of those metrics is very high. And you could actually have the right data, but if you're converting that data into metrics, supplemental metrics in the wrong way, can end up with radically different decisions.
0: Hello, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Chris Sands, CFO of Mineral Tree, a fintech based in Boston. We recorded our episode from the floor of the AFP conference in Boston last month. Chris arrived in the CFO office with some investment banking experience, a tour of duty in investor relations, and some high calorie FP&A experience. Our discussion with Chris. Begins after these words from our sponsor. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful at planful.com. So, hello, we're speaking with Chris Sands, CFO of Mineral Tree Incorporated. Chris, welcome.
1: Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me.
0: Chris, we're going to uh, begin where we always do, which is to ask our CFO guests to look back for us and share with us what were those experiences they feel prepared them for a finance leadership role? What comes to mind for you?
1: Sure. So when I think about my career to date, I really think about it in three pieces. So I started my career uh, right after business school in New York, uh, working for a few of the banks, uh, first in investment banking and then in equity research. I actually started at Lehman Brothers in the summer of 2008 as an investment banking associate, which is an interesting story we can get into if you'd like. Um, spent about three years doing investment banking, and then I spent three and a half years at J.P. Morgan as a sell-side equity research analyst. And so I started my career uh, in on Wall Street, and what I really liked about that is it was a fantastic place to be to see the macro implications of finance. So when you're thinking about valuing firms and doing M&A transactions, raising capital, thinking about the relative value of public equities, you really get to see the synthesis of all things finance within a corporation. And so that was just a fantastic place to be in my career. But as I got towards the end of my time in in New York, I really realized that I wanted to go more down the CFO path. And while I had what I thought was this great top-down strategic finance skill set, I really realized I knew nothing about running a finance function. And so I set out to go work uh, in industry at companies in the various disciplines that report to a CFO so I could get that first-hand experience doing things like FP&A, accounting, investor relations, treasury. And so the next phase of my career, I I moved uh, back to Boston. I grew up in Massachusetts originally, so I was happy to come home. Uh, In my first job, I was working for a small publicly traded energy technology company running investor relations and Treasury, uh, which was a fantastic experience, great way to leverage a skill set I picked up as a sell-side research analyst and apply that within a company uh, working with the analysts that that covered the business as well as the company's investors. Uh, That was a fantastic experience. That company ended up being acquired and so presented an opportunity for me with the investor relations function going away to look for a different opportunity. What I didn't necessarily appreciate when I was on Wall Street was really the importance of the FP&A function within a company. And so I was seeking out opportunities at that point to get that FP&A experience because it became very apparent to me in the the IR job that I really needed to master that skill set if I was going to be a CFO one day. And so I was able to taken FP&A position at a, a, a mid-sized public healthcare company that just gone public. It was a hybrid investor relations and fp role, which was another great fit because it allowed me to leverage what I had learned doing IR, which was a function that I really enjoyed, uh, but also pick up the FP&A skill set that I, I, I desired to get. And so I, I went to that company. It was actually subsequently acquired shortly after I joined by Thermo Fisher Scientific, which is a roughly Fortune 100 global company with... 25 billion dollars of revenue and 80,000 employees that ended up being a fantastic experience because when you think about the benefits of being at such a large corporation they can be fantastic places to uh, learn how these functions are are executed at scale and with uh, a lot of rigor and discipline. so I spent two years doing that which is leads me to the kind of third phase of my career where I am now which is mineral tree. I, a colleague that I had worked with in a, at a previous job had come over to Mineral Tree to be the chief operating officer. He's now our CEO. And so he reached out to me about the CFO opening. And so when I said earlier about the, thinking about my career in three different phases and, and being the important phases, the third one actually ends up being getting your first CFO gig, right? I had previously, when, once I knew that I aspired to be a CFO, I would always look at CFO Uh, job descriptions, job recs to understand what the skill sets were that people uh, desired for that role. And inevitably, they always wanted someone with CFO experience as if people are just born with this experience. So for me, it was really important to get that first time CFO experience. And so when I had the opportunity to do that uh, in an exciting business, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, but with someone I had worked with in the past and trusted, it was a a no brainer and and an excellent opportunity for me to, to jump over and take this role.
0: Wow, uh, t- sounds like an exciting path uh, to the CFO office. And that last chapter is uh, particularly interesting. We want to uh, maybe circle back on, with you on some of the information you shared. But right now, we want to find out about Mineral Tree. Tell us about this company, maybe the opportunity that you saw, uh, and uh, what are, what are the competitive offerings? What what sets it apart in the marketplace today?
1: Sure. So I, I I mentioned why Mineral Tree was a compelling opportunity me opportunity to me for professional reasons. Uh, it was also a very compelling opportunity to me to me for biz for the business reasons. So Mineral Tree is a uh... cambridge massachusetts-based fintech company that actually sells into the finance functions of middle market businesses so as a finance practitioner i could appreciate uh... the demand for the product that the company was selling and specifically that product is accounts payable automation so uh... many folks listening may have a growing awareness of this category because it really has become more prevalent just in, in the last few years. And so what for those that aren't familiar, what accounts payable automation means is we offer a, a software platform that helps businesses manage and execute their payments to their vendors. So it's a soup to nuts process from Uh, Invoice capture on the front end through a software tool that manages the workflow around invoice capture, invoice management, invoice approval, and then executes the payments on the back end. So as I mentioned earlier, someone who sits on the finance function and is witnessing firsthand the digitization of the finance function within companies, the value proposition resonated with me immediately. So the opportunity to uh, get my first CFO gig, uh, as well as at a company where, in addition to working in the finance function, I can have input into the product and really understand the market was uh, just an incredible opportunity for me.
0: You explained how your uh, associate had become chief operating officer and then the CEO, and then you joined the organization. And curious what maybe your priorities were when you arrived. Was there, uh, did you want to reorganize finance? Did you want to make certain key hires? Uh, did you like what was in place, but maybe needed to do things a little differently? What, what did you do? And again, you've only
1: been there, I guess it's 12 months, we're rounding the corner on a year. Uh, but what would you tell us? Yeah, just over a year. So the short answer is a lot. And and some of that, or or most of it is a reflection of where the business was. So the company's been around nine years, but really, I would say started to gain traction with product market fit uh, about three years ago. And so if you think about the typical curve of evolving companies most of the investment dollars go into product they go into sales and marketing and not a ton into the G&A functions like finance and so that's certainly was the case for mineral tree as well Uh, the staff the finance staff was pretty lean we had done everything very manually and I would say most of the finance function revolved around the, the kind of core accounting aspects of the finance function, which I think everyone can appreciate is is not the entire value that the finance function can bring to the organization. So at a high level, when I looked at what the finance function was doing when I arrived and what I would like it to do in the future state, I'll characterize it as going from just kind of closing the books and doing the core accounting, the so-called, I had a boss who would call it kind of keeping the score, which I thought was a great analogy, to uh, making the finance function more influential in how the company makes business decisions. And so I know this is a very popular topic amongst finance professionals today, but it's how do you go from just keeping the score to adding value and and driving good business decisions. And so that's what we're doing and we can get into some of the ways we're doing that, but it it has a lot to do around metrics and data and being able to provide that to folks across the organization so that we are making informed decisions that make sense for creating value uh, in the business.
0: Is it? Uh, were you able to make FP&A uh, a priority in an organization this size? Sometimes it can't get all the resources. Sometimes it's. Uh uh, you know, just a single individual. <laughs> what what is uh, the FPNA function?
1: Yeah, so given your background, yeah, I thought, so I would exciting. say it's a priority. Uh, it's one person. Uh, he's also the CFO. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we haven't yet uh, hired a, a dedicated FPNA person, but I would say that's uh, on the roadmap for, for the very near term. Uh, but really, as I've spent my time, and, and we can talk about some of the things we've done in the last year, including we, we raised a nice Series C with a, a new partner in Boston, Great Hill Partners, who we're thrilled about, uh, but a lot of the time I've spent over the last year is starting to build out those capabilities and, and really understanding the metrics that drive the business myself, right? It's, so once I have that understanding, we've started to build in some of the reporting And I would love to bring in someone in the next 12 months to really take that over day to day so that we can be even better at it. Right. I mean, it gets a lot of my attention now, but there's also a lot of other things I need to do day to day that prohibit me from giving that probably as much attention as I need. But I mean, you nailed it. When you look at a company of our size, an emerging company, it's, the, the function is still very nascent, but it's, it's hugely important and you know, my business partners on the executive team, they crave all of that data um, and so everyone in the organization wants it. It's just a matter of uh, continuing to to scale those capabilities.
0: What about um, your your top of mind metrics? What, what then are those those day to day metrics that you're paying very close attention to?
1: So the metrics that are important to me are a lot of the ones that I'm sure most people look at, which are your typical income statement balance sheet metrics. Uh, In addition to looking at absolute metrics, I'm always very interested in the relative metrics. How do they compare to budget? How do they compare to forecast? Why are they different? That's not only informative to me from a learning perspective as I build forecasts and build budgets, uh, but it's also very helpful for others in the business that they learn from that as well. What's maybe a little more unique to our business is our platform uh, has a SaaS, or software as a service component to it, so a lot of folks who are in that business are familiar with unit economics, talk about things like lifetime value, customer acquisition costs, they really help you gauge how profitable your customers can be over the long run, so we're very focused on those metrics as well. Those are perhaps a little more atypical than, than the three financial statements, so we spend a lot of time thinking about those, that's always an interesting conversation with my business partners on the executive team, with our investors, because those metrics are more supplemental, not necessarily as well-defined as some of the traditional accounting and finance metrics, uh, there's always differing views on how they should be treated. I mentioned that our business has a SaaS component. Well, it also has a transactional component because of the way we execute payments. And so we've had to adapt some of those supplemental metrics to fit our business. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about uh, how to make sure the integrity of those metrics is very high. I mean, the worst thing you can do, and I, I always am interested to hear how people think about metrics and you metrics, big data, all good buzzwords, but they're only as good as the the quality and integrity of the metrics, right? It's kind of garbage in, garbage out. So the worst thing we could do is say, hey, we have all these metrics, but we're not uh, super careful about how well-defined and measured the metrics are can lead to some really bad decision-making, which is the exact opposite of, of what you want, so.
0: Are you talking uh, about data integrity there, or what are you, what, what are you getting at with well,
1: necessarily. Uh, so yes, it would. what I'm talking about would be inclusive of data integrity, but I'm also thinking about the way the metrics are designed. So you could actually have the right data, but if you're uh, converting that data into metrics, supplemental metrics in the wrong way, uh, and I don't want to get into too much, you, know, you can end up with radically different decisions than you would if you did it uh, either the right ways by standard industry practice, or in our cases, you have to adapt metrics to suit the nature of your business, just making sure you're super, super thoughtful about that.
0: Interesting. Due to your lines of sight into the organization as a finance executive, you were able to see an opportunity or a risk. You know you've had thousands of these along the way, We're just looking for one that uh, comes back to you when I ask the question. Tell us about a finance strategic moment.
1: Sure. The one that immediately comes to mind was actually at the first job I took after I left JP Morgan. So when I transitioned from uh, Wall Street into industry and was running investor relations uh, for the company Interknock, we, the company, The business had evolved over time, uh, but the company's reporting had not, and I could tell from my seat in investor relations that investors were having a hard time understanding the performance of the business because the reporting hadn't caught up. So I actually had the opportunity, uh, which is credit to my boss, because he empowered me to do this, but to lead a an initiative inside the business to uh, redesign the reporting of the business and actually create segment reporting. And this was hugely important from an IR perspective, but I would make the argument that it was even more important internally because we weren't looking at the business internally that way, right? And it's you can't, the the old adage is you can't uh, manage what you can't measure. And so that, for me, was... uh, such an important point in my career, not only because it it showed me the impact that you can have in in a business from the finance seed, but it was also, as you think about just me personally and how I thought about my career evolving, when I left J.P. Morgan and, and left Wall Street to go to industry, I knew that I wanted to get these skill sets and I knew I had a great background coming from investment banking and and equity research, but I didn't necessarily have the confidence to know that I could run finance functions in a company. And so that particular uh, moment and that particular project was one of the most confidence inspiring moments in my career because it said, hey, you can have an impact and you can do this. And, and just the benefits that it had within the organization and just the way the organization started thinking about the, the, the two different businesses and what ultimately transpired after that was, was fantastic. Okay.
0: Great moment, great place and time to spotlight for us. Uh, when we return, CFO Christopher Sands will be stepping in to the mentoring round. We'll be back after this. Hey, it's Jack Sweeney, and we're attending Sage Intac's Advantage Conference in Las Vegas this month. We've caught up with Pavan Makhija, CFO of Possible Health. Pavan has agreed to answer three quick questions for us, and then we'll return to our CFO interview. Pavan, look forward for us. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months?
2: Yeah, the, the biggest priority for us is we've instituted a five-year strategy plan and we really want to make sure that we look at the costs of that five-year strategy plan and we look at the plan in terms of where cost fits within that. So we are adding sort of cost effectiveness um, as part of the you know deliverables to the five-year strategy. So
0: cost effectiveness, uh, is this a Each quarter, you look back at how you're
2: tracking your progress or or what kind of visibility are you trying to achieve into those costs? The conversations are monthly, but the big conversations with the whole organization is only once a year at mid-year point and then during the budget process. Those who might have heard
0: our episode where we got to share your finance career journey as well uh, are probably aware of how costs were one of your initial uh, initiatives there helping uh, people throughout the organization understand that costs had to be
2: managed better. Where are you on that journey? <laughs> I mean we're way further than I thought we would ever be. Um, the whole organization has sort of thought about costs in a way that they never did before. Um, you know some might think we're going bankrupt or some might think we have an evil CFO who's making us think about this, but either way. As they make decisions, as they think about it, they think about the budget. They think about why they're making that decision. They ask themselves, is this a valuable decision from every level? And it's amazingly inspiring to see even low front uh, frontline workers uh, making those decisions and thinking about that.
0: Is there one particular metric that you use uh, to uh, sort of convince yourself you're headed in the right direction? Or, you know, what, what what are you looking at to make certain that you're on track? What is that that
2: yeah, I think the the baseline that we're looking at is for the hospitals is cost per patient, and for the community health program is cost for, per visit. But those numbers, you know, until you dissect them and look deep into them, they don't add enough on their own. But they are the first line of, oh, this is going up. Um, so costs are going up, but patient flow is going down. Oh boy, you know.
0: Pavin Maquija, thank you for answering our three questions. Thank you. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Okay, we're stepping into the mentoring round with Chris Sands, CFO of Mineral Tree. Chris, what is it that's exciting you about finance and business today? What is it? Not not 20 years ago, or, or excuse me, a decade ago. What is it today that's exciting you about finance and business?
1: Yeah, so I would say that the... Finance function within a company is so much more dynamic today than it has ever been, and more specifically, what I mean—and this is relevant to me as a finance practitioner, but also for Mineral Tree and the customers it served—is that in order to be a truly successful finance professional today, you also have to be a technologist, right? I mean, I, I made a comment earlier that the function as a whole is being digitized, and that's actually a macro trend that Mineral Tree plays to. But it's absolutely changing the way not only people practice finance, uh, but it also changes the skill set they need to have to be effective at their at their roles. So, for instance, right now, Mineral Tree is uh, implementing NetSuite, which is kind of the first cloud-based ERP the company's ever using. And I spend a lot of time working on that project designing our instance of NetSuite, thinking about how it's going to interact with our other cloud-based systems, whether it's uh, Salesforce or uh, platforms we use in our customer success organization or the actual database where we get usage data from all of our customers. And that's not something I was trained to do when I was in college, and that certainly wasn't in the accounting or finance curriculum. Um, But it's so important, and I think that it's apparent to everyone that it's so important for finance functions to adopt these technologies because the efficiencies the functions gain creates the opportunity for the function to bring so much more value to the business, right? Because if you can capitalize on these efficiencies, then you can use your mental horsepower to Create those insights that are more impactful for the business, as, as opposed to spending tons of time manually invoicing your customers or closing the books. And so, for me, that's the most exciting thing. It's clearly a, a macro trend that's not going anywhere. It's going to continue to evolve. I would say we're still in the very early innings of that. I mean, it, when I think about the mineral, the market opportunity for Mineral Tree, I mean, the first step a lot of companies take in this digitization journey is implementing the cloud based erp just like we are now and then once you do that there are so many applications like mineral tree that plug in to these erp systems and so as i think about the my technology wish list over the next uh, 2 years i already have uh, a handful of other applications that i'd like to go explore and potentially add on to to NetSuite in order to create more efficiencies with the team and allow us to do more and bring more value to the organization.
0: Earlier, you uh, explained how you arrived, really, at Mineral Tree. I want to take you uh, back there now and ask, what is that piece of advice <laughs> that first week on the job, the first month on the job, that you, if you could go back in time and whisper in your own ear, what would be the advice you give yourself? And again, there's a question we ask all our finance leaders about that first time they stepped into that role. There had to be something uh, that surprised them, something they are a little like, oh, gosh, <laughs> wish I knew that. What? Anything come to mind when we
1: ask that question? Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, so there's a lot that I, that I wish I knew, and probably there's a lot that I'm um, going to continue to wish I knew as I, I continue to go down this journey. You know, for me, the... Most important parts or one of the most important parts of of being in this role is the relationship you have with your peers on the executive committee. I mean, that's something that you can't really have much experience with until you're in the seat. And just how important the relationship is with the CEO to your success and and his success, quite frankly, his or her success, Um, his in my case. Um, And so that is... Something I, I, I wish I knew more about more about when I first stepped in and had spent more time studying. Um, but the other thing, and it does, it's not necessarily advice that I, I wish I had when I got into the seat. But one piece of advice that I give to folks who are aspiring CFOs is don't be afraid to share your ambitions with your mentors. So. When I, I mentioned earlier that when I transitioned from J.P. Morgan to industry, I felt like I had a good skill set, but I wasn't entirely confident that it was the right skill set to get me to CFO and that I could do it. Um, but as I started to build that confidence, I became more comfortable sharing my aspirations with my boss, who was a longtime public company CFO of very, uh, many very familiar brands and just letting people know what your aspirations are they're not mind readers but when they know and if it's if you've read the relationship right and they're a true mentor uh, they will enable you on that journey and that is is—is I just when I think about where I am now and and how I got there that's probably the single most important thing.
0: Earlier you you did uh, quickly mention uh, the downturn in Lehman Brothers and Barclays, which is uh, a heck of a way to uh, sort of uh, kick off, or it's towards the beginning of your career, really. C- can you take us back there and let us know? I, I mean, did you think uh, for a while uh, finance might not be the best path after all? Uh, your timing wasn't terrific. No,
1: the, the timing <laughs> wasn't great. So, I mean, I'll, I'll give you the, the story quickly. So I had interned at Lehman in the summer of 0- 07, went back in the summer of 08. And the way the associate program for investment bankers worked is you would do 10 weeks of training. And then at the end of the 10 weeks, you would do three rotations through three different investment banking groups to get you to the end of the calendar year so you could be on the same schedule as everyone else. Well, the Friday of our, the the last Friday of our 10 week training session was actually a celebratory event. We were at a cooking class in, in the city. I still have my Lehman Brothers apron and wine opener, which, you know, I, I could probably fund my kids' college with uh, by selling on eBay, but it was at a cooking class, and the the woman who was running the program was just like, you know, don't worry, everything's going to be all right, someone's going to come in and buy us, and sure enough, that Sunday night, I was sitting at home, and the, the news hit the tape that Lehman had filed for bankruptcy, so... I was to, and the class was about 100 people in New York, so I, I certainly wasn't alone, but we were all to report to the first day of our first rotation that Monday morning, immediately after the Sunday night bankruptcy, and so as you might imagine, it was it was chaos, so... They ended up letting us do the three rotations. They uh, placed people in the full-time groups based on demand, which which unfortunately was anemic given the state of the capital markets and everything that happened, Lehman bankruptcy and thereafter. Uh, but fortunately, I was able to secure a, a full-time spot and, and spend some time there at Barclays, under the Barclays umbrella.
0: Ah, certainly uh, not a chapter you'll forget anytime soon. We're going to ask you uh, more of a a question, more of a personal nature, something about yourself, uh, personal habit, or maybe part of your daily routine that you think has in some way contributed to your professional success. So this is something you do that you believe has perhaps helped you professionally as
1: well. I don't know if there's anything specific. I do try to take Personal wellness pretty seriously because I am a firm believer that you know if you don't take care of yourself you can't be your best person whether that's for your family or friends and and certainly for your career which ends up probably being the the bulk of your time and so I try to be pretty good about sleeping I go to bed early and get up early and try to keep the the same routine I try to be thoughtful about what I eat and make sure I get the exercise in I mean all of those things I think contribute tremendously to. Your, your mental well-being, and, and so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that, and like a proper uh, finance nerd, I track it in Excel, and even though there's all <laughs> these kind of whiz-bang apps out there, but... Uh,
0: you're, it, you're you're tracking what, necessarily? How much you sleep? I, or oh, I <laughs> track my sleep, I
1: track what I eat, I track... Do you really? I, I track how I exercise, <laughs> I, you know... All kinds of things. Um, so. you no, know,
0: we've been hearing a lot more about sleep. And uh, I think it's one of the areas that does get abused frequently. Um, and uh, finance leaders uh, land on it. You track it perhaps a little more closely than so. But do you have a book you'd recommend to uh, aspiring finance leaders? It doesn't have to be a business book. Um, we've had uh, novels uh, recommended in the past. Just don't say Jim Collins. We love you, Jim. Uh, we, we've had. uh we We've heard that one.
1: We've heard that. So I do like his stuff, but the, the one that I like, and actually I like a lot of his work, is I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Daniel Goleman, and he does the stuff on emotional intelligence. And uh, I think I th- he's got several books on emotional intelligence, but the one I'm specifically thinking is just called Emotional Intelligence. But generally his work on kind of the five pillars of emotional intelligence I think are super important. They're applicable not only in business, but also in your personal life. When you think about things like self-awareness and self-regulation and empathy and motivation and uh, social skills, those are kind of the five pillars that he tends to talk about. Uh,
0: Is this a blind spot in finance, do you think? Emotional intelligence? can it, it, it Necessarily, their career track doesn't make them perhaps as... Um, uh, People aware is maybe uh, some of the other uh, business functions. Let's just say, uh, of course, human capital, but also uh, sales, where salespeople tend to read a room rather well. They tend to
1: maybe so. You know, I, I certainly don't have any empirical evidence. It, perhaps it's <laughs> perhaps it's more common in finance, but but honestly, Jack. It's, Probably a blind spot in most folks, right? And I'm probably included in that, which is why I, I like to spend time reading about it. And I go back to that book and I go back. He has a great HBR article that uh, s- summarizes it and spending a lot. I mean, even sales folks may be able to read a room, but one of the key pillars is uh, self-awareness and then self-regulation. And, I'm, you know, I don't necessarily think of those two things when I think of salespeople. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you do you have any... Sa- Do do you have any salespeople that listen to this?
0: To this one, they might. Uh, No, uh, I'm the one who said that, of course, not Chris. Uh, All right. Well, we're up to our final question where I get to ask you to look forward and share with us what are your priorities uh, over the next 12
1: months as a finance leader? What comes to mind? Sure. So it's actually two things that I think we've already spoken about. The first is... The, I mentioned we were implementing NetSuite, and I just view that as the first step along our digitization journey. So, thinking about not only how do we capitalize on the full capabilities of NetSuite, but what other, once that's in place, how do we leverage other technology solutions to improve the output and the quality of the output that the team produces? Uh, but very much related to that is if you're gaining those efficiencies, we talked about really stepping up our FPA capabilities and using those to influence a business in a positive way so those will certainly be the themes in 2020 and and likely thereafter as well
0: chris Hands, thank you for joining us on cfo thought leader thanks jack